This evening's uh, talk is about kama, or as many of you probably are more familiar with the word in Sanskrit, karma. Kama being the Pali word. And beginning with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And I'd like to begin by saying something that I found to be quite helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that the teaching, uh, this teaching, offers and brings uh, to an ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of any higher authority, but rather a path of practice that's founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on kama is not so much something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we come to see and to know it in operation. It turns out that kama is not something unreachable or some kind of strange concept. As a Western woman, and I think that I can pretty safely say this for most of us, women and men, who've been brought up and conditioned as Westerners, it's been kind of a relief to discover this. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of Kama, which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really quite accessible and even quite ordinary. Maybe even so ordinary that it somehow uh, may elude our very complicated minds. So what is kama? Etymologically, or the root of the word kama, is action or deed. In the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and more clearly as action based on intention. Another way of saying this is action based on motivation. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddha's teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. 
So kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is the essence of kama. And some words from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention, Leads, to, leads us to choose to act and to speak in a wholesome way. An unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or to speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome kama. An unwholesome intention or motivation is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature, the way of things, the law of cause and effect, cause and result. So just like a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The Law of Kama is one of the fundamental natural laws. And it's through this that we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct, immediate experience, begin to understand the law of Kama, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life is clarified. The Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered by way of my own practice and I've discovered it to be quite amazing and illuminating, is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way that it's used and understood in our everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions, such as, I did that intentionally, or is that really what you meant to say? The Buddha's teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thought, no matter how fleeting, 
as well as the responses of the mind, the responses of the heart to the various sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so suddenly, subtly, volitionally, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruits of these choices. Intention is the factor which leads the mind to turn towards or turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or to not proceed in a particular direction. From this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs how the heart, how the mind responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force that organizes the movements of the mind, which means that intention is what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, by the heart. The Buddha spoke many, many times about the fact that it's motivation, it's the mental impetus of intention that leads to action. That is the determinant of our karmic fruit the determinant of the result of our action. Basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect, or cause and result. Inherent in each intention, in each motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. So in light of this, consider that even just one tiny thought that may not even be particularly a particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added then to the stream of conditions that shape one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced over and over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or in actions, the result, the comic fruit, is strengthened in the form of one's character, one's character traits. And even through our bodily makeup, such as various physical features and various expressions, physical expressions, as well as in the form of various mental, verbal, and active responses in reaction or in response in relationship to the outer world, 
even the responses and reactions that come to us from external sources can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we are unaware and repeatedly practicing the specks of mental kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. A painful or destructive intention, a painful or or destructive kama, doesn't have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once getting a note uh, that wasn't very pleasing to me when I was sitting a retreat a number of years ago. And I proceeded to um, angrily tear up that piece of paper that the note was written on. Even though that piece of paper itself had no importance in itself, the action certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind. In contrast to this, uh, yesterday afternoon I was uh, cleaning off my work table. And with a neutral state of mind, I just simply threw away a scrap of paper. A very different effect on the quality of my mind. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the wheel of dependent origination, or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. So in light of this discussion, uh, I'd like to read some words from Thai Buddhist scholar Venerable Paiuto. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck of dust (coughs) which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight onto a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. And even a smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, 
motivation, or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary to use the mind on a more refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various practicing woodland devas, uh, uh, devas are those beings um, whose practice has brought them to be uh, dwelling for lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet enlightened, who aren't yet completely free free of suffering. So in these suttas, various woodland-dwelling devas approach and speak to certain monks who are practicing in these same woodland thickets. So I'd like to share one of these dialogues as an illustration of, of what we're exploring in the moment. And this, uh, this particular verse is about a bhikkhu, uh, a monk, who, after returning from his uh, daily alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down to a a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who uh, lived in that same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in this monk to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And this sutta is called the thief of scent. And this is the sutta. With the deva speaking. When you, she's speaking to the monk. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given. This is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the monk answers, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva says, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the monk responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me and you have compassion for me. 
Please, O Spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva, maybe surprisingly to us, responds, We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, Wiku, or you, monk, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. And then that monk, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency to practice. The understanding that various experiences of suffering, various various experiences of stress, and the experiences of ease are the result of our kama, the result of our actions, our actions of thought, speech, and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back. This is our kama. This is kama. We could say we're born, we spring out of the womb of kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're the undeniable, undeniable heirs of our kama. For instance, just as, as soon as we've spoken words or just as soon as we've performed any action, We've totally lost control over it. And yet it remains with us. In some way, it remains with us uh, and and inevitably returns to us as our due inheritance. We could say that with everything that happens and the ease or the dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, is the outcome of our own mind's relationship to all of the happenings, internally and externally. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this lifetime, in any given moment, is due to our own mind, our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, our wholesome or unwholesome responses or reactions to the internal and external phenomena. In other words, uh, our ease and happiness or our dis-ease and suffering is due to the motivations, the intentions, and the subsequent actions, the deeds of our own mind body and speech, not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes, not due to our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious or seemingly strange or foreign world. As awakening beings, our, uh, our practice continues to develop. Our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. 
as this comes clearer and clearer through our own direct experience, through our own body-mind continuum, we find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind, more and more lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices, rather than unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing, we can and do actively create and fashion our life. And that more clearly we know our motivations, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, ignoring or misunderstanding the way of things, we're living in conflict. We're living in disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound then to experience fear or anguish or dissonance and confusion. As this understanding takes root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? The heart begins to relax. We begin to know that we can change our mind, that we're not trapped running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists, but instead of canvas and paint or clay or marble or music or pencil and pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, body, and heart, and the immediacy of our live experience that are the materials of our creative expression. And so again, one of the benefits of our practice that comes is a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing, we can and we do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we clearly know our motivations, our intentions, 
the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama to be the most important and far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought, of course, precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, are conditioned by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what direct our motivations, our intentions, and the resultant thoughts, which potentially flow out into words and into actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of our self, of other beings and things, and even situations, experiences, places, as being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding. We're motivated by ignorance. We're motivated by what is called in the Buddha's teachings, wrong view. We're motivated by ignorance, meaning ignoring the truth of things. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations, are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place, and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, as we're growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, places, are totally interdependent and arise only because of various conditions coming together, and that in fact the conditions themselves are also always in flux, that nothing, no thing abides independently or separately or is static. As we grow into this understanding, our intentions, our motivations come out of understanding the way of things, come out of what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from the place of harmony and what I like to call a lightness of being and are appropriately responsive to any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and in subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. 
what we call self is actually a process made up of many different elements, with all of them being in continual flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within this essentially impersonal process, our actions are like seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished. Some seeds are dormant, maybe for lifetimes, until the exact combination of conditions arise for them to germinate. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. The metaphor that's often used is that apple seeds bring apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. A loving act ends up bearing loving fruit. And a hateful act produces hateful fruit. No self behind our actions doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and actions, and their karmic fruit. And some words uh, regarding this from the Buddha. When there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view Verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations are all productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? on account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. When there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, Verbal kama created as a result of that view. Mental kama created as a result of that view. As well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations. All are yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It's like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed that has been planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. 
On what account is that? On account of that good seed. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of the intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, then unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise. And we may mindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or future suffering. Padmasambhava, who is said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibetan Bhutan, said this, Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of karma should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act, and awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they have been said and performed, actually has the effect of broadening our field of choice as we work, as we practice to purify and to transform our mind, to purify and transform our heart and our actions. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving kindness, and compassion towards others, it comes back to us. And we see and we feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression or greed or grasping. An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not so important where your present suffering came from. But what is important is where you take it from here. Meaning what's most important is how you approach the situation in this moment. And I think this is a really important aspect of the Buddhist teaching. So for instance, the appropriate, healthy, and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it might be, is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there is a refuge, so to say. A refuge where the suffering of confusion Fear, anger, resistance, discontent, it's a a long list, uh, where this suffering can be dispelled. 
And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, wholesome thought, words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now. And maybe even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself, this incredible training of the heart, this incredible training of the mind, is a very good deed, really the best deed, and the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been important for me in understanding kama, is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this. It becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our heart, in our mind, the mind becomes more tranquil and serene. And we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and difficulties in our practice and in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the results of our deeds maybe bring us some sorrow or some discomfort and pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life, or maybe in some surprising or unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds might not be at all what we expected, not what we had in mind. Results that are maybe contrary to what we uh, might think our intention, what we might think our motivation was. Many years ago, I... I had a therapist who would uh, sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me uh, at appropriate times, this isn't what I had in mind, which would always stop me in my tracks and move me to really take a look 
a very close look at my motivations and expectations. And most importantly in those moments, to simply be with what was occurring with an open heart and with as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. Maybe sometimes uh, a fairly stern and in a certain way a demanding teacher. Yet potentially a truthful and a well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born, repeatedly being reborn, into the realm of suffering. And I'd like to um, close this evening's talk with some words from the Buddha. All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And the Buddha goes on to say, Therefore, one should reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. And as the Buddha tells us, it's by mental defilement that beings are defiled. It's by mental purification, by our practice, that beings are purified. And let's sit for just a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.